I wonder what is it that makes us want to read a book at the last chapter first. For some reason, many people begin their reading of the Bible with the book of Revelation. And you couldn't make a more serious mistake in trying to understand the Bible. Because it plunges you right into a confusing array of uh, dragons and and trumpets and vials and seals and uh, scorpions and many uh, amazing sights and sounds and visions. And no wonder people throw the book up with disgust and say, there's no use trying to make head nor tail of it. Well, I think it's very significant that the book of Revelation has, is the last book of the Bible. And it's understood, or should be, that by the time you've gotten to the book of Revelation, you've been through the rest of the Bible. And if you have read the Bible before you come to Revelation, you will uh, be much better equipped to understand this book that climaxes the revelation of God to his people. After all, I don't know any book of the Bible that has more help given to it in understanding it than this book. The reason why many have difficulty in understanding this book is not only the symbols, which we'll speak of a little bit later, but also because they fail to take note of the of the suggestions that are given to us about reading this book in the first eight verses. If you just read the first eight verses carefully and thoughtfully, you'll have a tremendous key to this book. I'll show you what I mean. This is like the front page of a book, the title page of a book, with certain uh, uh, introductory helps that are given, suggestions on the reading of it. And if you read it that way, it'll help you greatly in understanding this. The title of it is the first line, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. Now, you notice it's not the revelations, S. It's not plural. I always can tell when people are betraying their spiritual and biblical ignorance when they refer to this book as the revelations. But it's not the revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is all about Jesus Christ. And it is his self-revelation. It was given to him by God, the Father, in order to reveal to his servants. And the purpose of it is given in the next line. To show to his servants what must soon take place. You know this book was written by the Apostle John when he was a captive in the Isles of Patlam, the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And it dates from about 95 AD, toward the close of the first century. And there John uh, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he tells us, and he began to see visions, which were revelations given to him by the Lord Jesus through an angel of things which must shortly come to pass. So it's a predictive book, and that's made very clear in this very first verse. Then you have the method of the book, very important, in the next phrases. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And the words, he made it known, 
are really a translation of Greek words which mean he signified it. Or as the, uh, I think the King James Version has that, he signified it. Or if you want to read it this way, he signified it. He made it known by signs, by symbols. One of the reasons why you have symbols in this book is because it's dealing with things which were to come, which were beyond the scope of imagination of men and women of the first century. It's talking here about events that are just now beginning to break in all their portentous horror upon the world as possibilities on the horizon of our own day. It's talking perhaps about nuclear warfare and about worldwide plagues and biological warfare. And how could this be described in terms of the of a generation that knew warfare, in terms of caval, uh, cavalry and uh, uh, no guns and swords and this type of thing? Obviously, it had to be made known by symbols. That's what we always employ when we try to convey some uh, abstruse or abstract thought. We put it in symbolic form. You remember that story that made the rounds a few years ago about the governor of Montana who uh, commissioned an artist to paint the thoughts that went through the minds of General Custer at the last battle, Custer's last battle. And you recall the artist worked away for weeks and weeks, and finally there came the day for the unveiling of this picture, which was to convey the thoughts that went through Custer's mind. And uh, remember the surprise of the governor when he saw, when the veil was dropped, here was a, here was a, a cow with a halo around its head, standing in the center of the picture. And coming over the hill was a file of Indians with sacks of cotton on their back. And the governor said, what do you mean by this? What does this portray? And the artist said, well, governor, it should be very clear. These are the thoughts that went through General Custer's mind at the battle. He's thinking, holy cow, where did all these cotton-picking Indians come from anyway? <laughs> <laughs> now that may be tinged with irreverence but I don't mean it to be so it's a very clear description of the need to resort to symbolic language when you're describing something that is not in the experience of another and that's what you have in the book of Revelation it's a picture for us of the things that were shortly to come to pass and another helpful thing about these symbols is that every one of these symbols found in this last book of the Bible have been picked up out of the rest of the Bible. And that's why if you'd read the Bible before you came to Revelation, you'd have a great deal better understanding of what these symbols mean. They're not suddenly introduced to us. They're picked up, for the most part, from other parts of Scripture and reused in a consistent manner here in the book of Revelation. And if you follow that key and refer to the other passages in which these symbols appear, you'll be given great help in understanding this book. Now, the third thing about on this title page is a special blessing for those who read this book. I think the Holy Spirit knew that it'd be difficult to many 
And so these words are added in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. That mean, have you ever have you ever qualified for that blessing? Some of you are a little short on blessing. I suggest if you'd like to get a little extra supply that you lay that you qualify for it by reading and keeping what is written in this book. It's written for that purpose. The time of the book, the time of these events is suggested to us at least in verse three. The time is near. That is, the events which are to follow in this book begin shortly after John wrote. And that gives us a bit of a clue. Then you get the destination of it. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And the first part of the book are letters specifically addressed to these seven churches who group together in a rather rough circle in what we now call Asia Minor. There were seven of them, but there were more than those. Uh, there are more churches than that in the district, but these seven are selected because they're representative. And as we'll see in a moment in the seven letters, they're representative of the church of that day, of all church of all churches in any day, and of the whole age of the church from the beginning until the end. Now you get the authors or author of this letter. In verse, uh, the rest of verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There is the, the Trinity, God, the triune God, the Father in his sovereignty and his and his eternity, him who is and was and is to come. The seven spirits signifying the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold plenitude of power. And Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness. They unite together to give us this amazing prediction. And then it follows a dedication. Many a book has a dedication to it, and you have one here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's the one who by his acts has laid the foundation for all human blessing, and it's to him this book is dedicated. Then the subject of the book, the general theme of it, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Everyone who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is a book about the second coming of Jesus Christ. How it will be accomplished, what will happen on earth that will produce these events, and what will be the result after he comes. It's all about that great theme of prophecy. And finally, the signature of the book. The personal signature of the author. Look at this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, you remember, when this book was written, the church was being persecuted. It was under the reign of the emperor Domitian, 
who is one of the most vicious persecutors of the, of the church, a man who declared himself to be the Lord and God of the Roman people. And uh, under the severe persecution that broke out here, these Christians needed some encouragement. And here's the personal signature of God, in effect, saying, don't worry, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the A and the Z. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. And a church with its back up against the wall needed that kind of assurance. And one other thing out of this first chapter, and then we'll look in general at the book, you get the plan on which this book is written in verse 19. John is told, now write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. And there's the divisions of the book of Revelation. The things John saw, which occupy chapter 1. The things which are, the things which existed in his day. And these were the seven churches, and the things concerning the churches, which occupy chapters 2 and 3. And then beginning at chapter 4, you have a long section of the book which deals with the things which are hereafter. And I believe that that hereafter means after the church is gone. Chapters 2 and 3 cover the whole present age. And the latter part of the book uh, is deals with that final culmination of human events that's referred to in other places in the Bible as the time of the Great Tribulation or the time of the end, or Daniel's 70th week. Some of them refer to it that way. A period of seven years in length in which all that has been happening in the cauldron of human events suddenly sweep to a startling conclusion. And that conclusion is traced for us here in the book of Revelation. All the frightening turbulence of our own day is moving toward this event. And all that is happening in human history and has been happening for 20 centuries has been moving to produce this one great event. As the apostle, as the pro, uh, poet James Russell Lowell said, there is a far off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. And that event is the return of Jesus Christ and the completion of God's program for this world. Nothing that's happened in between has been out of line of that purpose. And it all is producing the events that we'll see take place in this book. Now, I cannot spend time on details much as perhaps some of you would like me to on certain fascinating details of this book, but I must hastily go through now some of the highlights of this program. First, there were the letters to the seven churches. These churches were representative churches. That means that not only were the actual churches that, li that existed when John wrote, and to which these letters were actually delivered, but they were churches which were picked to be representative of any church at any time. That is, in any given age, any one church is somehow representative of at least one of these seven churches. What is Peninsula Bible Church like? Which one is it nearest to? I don't know. I hope it's the Church of Philadelphia. But uh, 
It might be some other. But these are representative churches. And furthermore, they not only represent individual churches in any given age, but they represent a, a process in the history of the church. The letter to the church at Ephesus, for instance, is all about a church which was outwardly successful, but was beginning to lose its first love, it, that underlying motivation that's so necessary for Christians. And that uh, refers to the first century church, which is exactly described by that. The next church is the church of Smyrna, which means crushed, the church that was persecuted. And this is, is exactly the description of this church and would cover the uh, general period from the second century to the time of Constantine the Great, the emperor of Rome, the first Christian emperor of Rome in the 320 A.D. Then it's followed by the church of Pergamos or Pergamum which means married. And in this church you find the trouble is the church has married the world. The two are trying to get along together. And this is the church where there is a infiltration of all the attitudes and the value systems of an unbelieving world into the processes of the church. And it well reflects that period in church history from the time the rise of Constantine who made Christianity the popular religion of the day unto the rise of the of the the full rise of the papacy and the papal church in about the 7th century then you you have that followed by the church of Thyatira and Thyatira is the church where spiritual adultery was going on and it's a very act apt and accurate description of what is now called the dark ages of the church where the church lost its zeal, its purity its doctrines, became infiltrated with a great deal of superstition and paganism and lost much of its power, in fact most of it and it brings you down to the time of the reformation then you have the church of Sardis and uh, the church of Sardis is a picture of a church which uh, has recovered much of its truth, but still seriously lacks in its vitality and its life. And it's a picture again of the period of the Reformation and the Reformation churches, which, though they began in a flaming fire of zeal, soon died down and whitened to the ashes of a dead orthodoxy. This is followed by the Church of Philadelphia, the one that I hope we resemble in some way, which is the, the picture of which the Lord has nothing evil to say, nothing corrective about it. He commends it because it's true and faithful to the word, and it has a little strength, he says. And it pictures that period of the church age of the 19th century when the church is awakened from the death of uh, uh, that they had been subject to and thrust out into the far corners of the earth in the great missionary movements of the last century. And finally, the last church is the church of Laodicea, the rich church, the church that thinks it has everything, the church that says, I don't have need of anything. I don't need anything from God at all. I've got money, I've got influence, I've got power. That's all I need. And God says, you blind fool. 
Don't you know that you don't have anything? You're naked and poor and pitiable and wretched and blind. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And he finally pictures himself as standing outside the door of the church, knocking for admittance. Now, you you lay that alongside the record of history and see what you think. Is that the course the church has followed in the ages or not? And has it brought us down to Laodicean times? If so, you know where we are in this predictive program of the church of God. Now, beginning at chapter 4, a change takes place. You notice John says again what is a key word in this epistle, in this book. He says, uh, verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit on the day of Patmos, uh, the day of the Lord in the island of Patmos in chapter 1. Now he's in the Spirit again, and lo, he sees a throne standing in heaven with one in the midst of it. And the scene shifts now from earth to heaven. Now, that doesn't mean somewhere out in space. I hope we get away from these spatial ideas of heaven. Oh, it's true that heaven fills the whole of space and all the earth as well. But heaven in the Bible is really the realm of invisibilities. The hidden, the another dimension, if you like, wherein God reigns hidden from our eyes, but present among us, a spiritual kingdom which surrounds us on every side and which constantly intrudes into our human history, but which we cannot taste or touch or sense or feel. And yet it's very real. And these were this kingdom was opened to John and he saw a throne and him who sat upon it. And immediately he knew who it was. He didn't need to be told. It was the throne of God, and God was in control of all history. This is an election year, and soon we're going to go to the polls and vote for Nixon, Rockefeller, Reagan, McCarthy, Wallace, who knows? One of them's going to win. But whoever it is we send to Washington is going to let us down. Not because he's a Democrat or a Republican or a Dixiecrat or whatever it is, just because he's human. And what John saw here is a remarkable vision of the, of the powerlessness and the weakness of man, but the greatness and the might of the being of God. John saw a throne and then he saw a lamb standing in front of the throne. A lamb with its throat cut. That's a strange symbol, isn't it, for the Son of God? And yet a very apt one. A lamb that had been slaughtered. And uh, that lamb, as John watched him, somehow turned into a lion. (laughs) And John saw that the lion who was the lamb, the one who had been slaughtered, was also the king of all. Stood before the one before the throne, and he had in his hand a little book. And that little book is very significant in the book of Revelation. Because as you read this book through, you find that it's the, it's the program of God for the establishment of his kingdom on earth. You know, for centuries, Christians, and some of you who aren't even Christians, have been praying these words. Thy kingdom come, O, uh, on earth, 
as it is in heaven. Do you know what that says? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this book is all about. How God sets up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, he rules unchallenged. On earth, his will is constantly being challenged by pygmy men who dare to lift their face, their fists against the authority of God. But he's going to change all that, and he's going to do it by the Lamb who is the Lion, who alone has the right to take the book and to unfold uh, uh, its scroll. This wasn't a book like I'm holding in my hand. It was a scroll of the, one of the ancient writings. And as the seven seals of this book are unfolded, the scroll unrolls until at last that which is written on it is plain to all. And John could see it. And he first weeps as he thinks no one has the right to take that scroll. And then he sees the Son of Man and he knows that here is the one who alone of all the earth has the right to unfold the scroll that's going to produce God's kingdom on earth. Then we read about the unfolding of that scroll. There are seven seals. And you who read the book know how the seven, number seven, appears frequently in this book. First, there are the seven seals. Each one, as it unfolds, releasing, revealing a new power at work in earth. There are These are followed by seven trumpets. And those, in turn, by seven vials or bowls of the wrath of God. Now, I think it would be helpful if I just briefly sketch for you how these fit together. We're talking now in chapter 6 about the beginning of this time of seven years in duration, which the prophet Daniel tells us, that's going to be the culminating time of history toward which all the events of our present day are moving. And it's introduced to us <clears throat> first by, by the, uh, uh, we learn from our Lord's uh, talk to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's introduced to us by a worldwide preaching of the gospel, not by the church, for I believe that though it's not mentioned directly in this book because the church is first viewed as a unit and then the rest of the history of the world, the church is caught up to be with the Lord in connection with the catching up of John the Apostle here into heaven in the first, in the fourth chapter. And that begins this age of the tribulation, this time of seven years. And the first event of it is a worldwide preaching of the gospel. And that is symbolized in these six seals or seven seals by the first one. Uh, I saw, John says, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. White is always the color of, of div divine beings, purity, holiness. And a bow speaks of conquering. And here's the conquering of the gospel. And you remember how the, Jesus said that this would happen. He said, this gospel must first be preached unto the whole world. And then shall the end come. 
And then the second uh, horseman is war. And uh, John says, I saw another rider and another horse bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, and he was given a great sword. What would that great sword symbolize other than nuclear warfare? The terrible power of the nuclear bomb released upon humanity. And uh, this is to come. John says it's the first thing, or the second thing. The third thing follows immediately, the third horseman. And here it's famine. Now, this is inevitable in the, in the wake of, of worldwide war. And then the fourth horseman is calamitous death. That is, death by four means, the sword, famine, pestilence, and the wild beasts of the earth. Uh, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. Death was on the horse, and Hades followed with the hearse, right behind. And uh, then John sees the fifth seal opened. And here he sees the martyrs under the earth, uh, under the altar. Now, what John is seeing in these six seals are the forces at work in humanity to produce the events uh, of history uh, in these last days. And therefore, human power is prominent throughout this. It's what God permits to happen by the force and power of human beings. And one of them now, we see the first four are outward forces, the last three of these seven, are inner forces. And the first one are the prayers of martyred souls. And then this is followed by uh, cosmic disturbances. And in verse 12, I want to read this because this is a key to the book. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now notice that earthquake and that hail, because you'll find again and again throughout this book an earthquake and hail and fire. And... This gives us a clue to understanding this book. We are treated to certain flashbacks here, which cover the whole period of seven-year time, and then flash back and pick up a portion of it and come up again to this final event. But the final event is always marked by the great earthquake, the fire, and the hail. That is the end of the seven-year period. And Jesus describes it in the 24th of Matthew when he too says the sun shall be turned to, the moon shall be turned to blood and the sun shall be darkened and the sky, stars shall fall from the sky and so on. Just before the return of Jesus Christ with his church back to earth. Now I can't spend time with details, but if you'll read through you'll find the, the seven trumpets coming next and they cover the last half of this seven year period going back to the middle again and picking it up and following it through as the tribulation increases in intensity. And then in chapters 11 and uh, uh, chapter 10 and 11, 
you find the unveiling of these and angel, angel voices that come in. And beginning in chapter 12, or let me read this, in verse 19, you'll notice you come to the earthquake again. When the seventh trumpet sounds, chapter 11, verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. We're back to the end again. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 introduce to us the great actors on the scene on earth. A woman, first of all, who is recognizable as Israel. And she brings forth a man-child, whom history has already informed us is the Son of God. And against him is arrayed the angels, Michael, uh, the angels of the devil and the, the great dragon called Satan. And these are engaged in conflict. And through, as John watches, a beast rises up out of the sea. And he was given to recognize that that beast was a, a form of human government recognizable and tied to Rome, the fourth great world kingdom that Daniel speaks about. And in some form, the Roman Empire is to exist until the end of time. And I think if you look at uh, our Western world, you can see how true that is. We're Roman to the core. We've picked up the Roman forms of government. Every nation of the Western Hemisphere was settled by a, mem a, a member a nation of the Roman Empire. And the whole Western world is Roman in his thought and philosophy and attitude. And against this, as we learn, with it, there's also uh, associated with this a religious beast or leader who many associate with the Antichrist. Uh, there, uh, in the book of Daniel, we learn that against this is a northern confederacy of power associated with Russia. Now, Russia doesn't appear much in the book of Revelation. Only in a few spots. But in the book of Daniel, which ties in very closely with this book, you have much more given to us of that. Now, I, I skip over verses, chapters 14, 15, and 16. For these, by and large, give us the outpouring of the vials of the wrath of God, which are exactly the same as those terrible judgments of which Jesus spoke when he said that uh, the sun would be darkened and the moon turned to blood, and God's wrath would be poured out upon the earth, upon men who have denied him, refused him, had nothing to do with him, refused his government, and refused the grace of his son. And then finally we come to chapters 16, 17, where you find uh, the judgment of the great religious harlot, Chapter 17 and 18, called Mystery Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon, you know, was the source of human, uh, of, of uh, ancient idolatry. And it is a picture of what we might call religious godlessness. Religious godlessness. That which looks godly, but in its essence is actually godless. A religion which outwardly commands the power and attention of men, but inwardly 
is filled with self-exaltation, self-importance and inflation, and uh, is uh, devoted to trying to exercise political power by the use of religious authority. Now, there are some who try to identify that with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Martin Luther thought, sure, it was the Pope. But if you read this through carefully, I think you'll see that this is not any one system or any one denomination. But what it is, is an attitude that permeates and pervades the whole church everywhere. And wherever you find anyone religious, acting religiously, who is trying to thereby gain political power or authority, you have Babylonianism. And it's in the Protestant churches as well as the Catholic church. It's, it's in the World Council of Churches and the International Council of Christian Churches. It's through all this. As Jesus said in another parable, remember, he said, the tares are sown among the wheat. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in chapter 19, you have the harvest of earth. Here John saw that, after, that uh, these great things were be to, to be destroyed. And uh, in, uh, in chapter 14, it was predicted that there would be a harvest. Verse 14, Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And then that actually occurs, that harvest, described in chapter 19, when Jesus Christ returns to earth. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, he who sat upon it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. His name is by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, followed him on white horses. And from his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations and to rule with a rod of iron. By this time, all the nations of the earth have gathered together in that battlefield called Armageddon in the land of Israel. And there, as the nations of earth gather together for battle against Jerusalem, the Son of God appears with the armies of heaven. And all these supernatural forces, which men have long denied, suddenly reveal themselves to human eyes in such a way as to eliminate all the opposition of entrenched evil against the will and authority of God. And... Uh, it closes with the Son of God, as he said he would do, coming to establish his kingdom and setting up his kingdom on earth. Then chapters 20 and 21 and 22 are all a beautiful picture of what follows. After the judgment of the dead, there comes the 
gift of God to earth, a new heavens and a new earth, and the city of God coming down out of heaven, where God makes his habitation with men. And uh, there John saw this great city, a city which would be the capital of God's empire on earth. Remember the prayer? (laughs) Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And here will be this city, which can only be described in negative terms. John saw no temple in it, or it didn't need a temple, and no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. There's a light within it of the presence of God himself that didn't require the sun or the moon. It doesn't say they don't shine, but it says they don't need it. And its gates shall never be shut by day or by night. The whole universe at last is cleansed of the rebellion of man. And there's nothing to be feared. Nothing unclean shall enter it. There shall be nothing more cursed. Remember when Adam sinned, God cursed the ground. So man had to struggle and toil and sweat and tears. That's lifted, done away with. All the beautiful dream of the prophets is to be fulfilled, where men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and never make war anymore. And wars will never cease until that day. General Carlos Romulo said, We have learned how to harness the atom, but we shall never make war obsolete until we learn how to bridle the passions of men. And only the Son of God can do that. And John says, the night shall be no more, and there will be no need of the light of lamp or sun in this beautiful city. And finally, it closes with words of admonition to all to wait for the coming, to work for it, to occupy, to be diligent and faithful and obedient until the Son of God come. Now, you see, this is a book of of extreme optimism. It uh, paints a dark, dark picture, but it doesn't stop there. It looks on beyond to the final victory of God, as certain and sure as tomorrow's sun, even more sure than that, that this, this final world will come. I want to close with quoting some words I read a number of weeks ago from the pen of C.S. Lewis, I think are very significant. He says, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then, when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream, and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, in this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. 
God is holding back to give us that chance. Did you ever think of that that way? Why does God permit all this, these things to happen today? That's the question on people's lips everywhere today. If there's a God, why does he let this happen? There's the answer. God is holding back that you and I might learn the secret of what he's doing and choose now to be with him rather than against him. Jesus said, he that is with me gathers, but he that is against me scatters. He's breaking up, fragmenting, dividing, contributing to the breakup of families and homes and individual lives. But he that is with me is healing, gathering, harmonizing, breaking down walls of partition, uniting that which is broken. C.S. Lewis says, God is holding back to give us that choice. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. There's a great deal of encouragement in this book. It's a book that'll stiffen your back when days are tough and rough and when things are happening in human history that frighten you. This book will give you great courage and comfort and encouragement if you know the Lord of it. But it's also a book designed to make us serious and solemn and to understand that regardless of what man does, does make a particle of difference. He who sits on the throne is running the program. And the one who is unrolling the, the, the scroll is the one who once was here and died on Calvary's cross, a lamb led to the slaughter, that he might win the right to be the king of all the earth. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the vision of this book. Its greatness eludes us, but entrances us, makes us realize that these are frightening days in which we live, as we see it heading toward this very conclusion, as inevitably and relentlessly human history takes its way to this goal. Lord, how... Uh, this should make us ask ourselves, where are we? On whose side are we? Have we found the Lamb who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Or are we turning from him, hoping to work out as best we can some silly little scheme of our own, hoping against hope that all that's revealed here will not be true, but that something will turn up at last to justify us in our unbelief? Thank you, Father, for telling us the truth and revealing it to us through John. And help us in these days to hold high the vision of this one, this blessed one who is to come into the very world in which his hands, which his hands had made and on which he once died upon a cross and claim it for himself. What a day that will be for him when he who once was rejected shall be acknowledged everywhere as the rightful Lord of earth. We pray and thank you in his name. Amen.